Tonight we begin at Isaiah chapter 45, and we pick it up from where we were last week, ending with chapter 44, where God makes an amazing prophecy of the future for Judah. You see, this is a prophecy of something very specific that was made 200 years before the event took place. And it has to do with delivering Israel, or I should say Judah, and the people who lived in Jerusalem from this captivity that they had been subjected to by the Babylonians. Let's just jump into it, and it'll become clear as we go along. Isaiah chapter 45, beginning at verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. These first three verses of Isaiah chapter 45 are indeed very marvelous for their very specific manner of prophesying the future. We notice in the very first line of verse 1 where it says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, where Isaiah carries on this remarkable prophecy from the previous chapter. And in this prophecy, God announces by name the deliverer for his people from a coming captivity, and he does it some 200 years before this man Cyrus is born. Now think about this. Put this in perspective. Think about somebody about the time of Thomas Jefferson or George Washington back in the late uh, 18th century or the early 19th century, prophesying by name that a man named uh, Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton would be the president of the United States towards the end of the 20th century. Again, not just prophesying what some particular political figure would do, but prophesying by name who the man was and what he would do on behalf of God's people. That's exactly what we see here in Isaiah chapter 45. And this man, Cyrus, had a special place in God's plan. We notice in the first line of verse 1, the Lord calls Cyrus his anointing. Now, the fact that he's called his anointed means that Cyrus had a particular anointing from God for his work. God poured out his spirit on a pagan king. Because God wanted to use that man to bless and to deliver his people. Might I say there's really not much precedent for this in the scriptures. Typically, we would find that when God wants to deliver his people, he would raise that deliverer up from among his people. But that is not the case here in uh, what is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 45. And as it was very specifically fulfilled, as we find, for example, in the book of Ezra, which we'll take a look at in a few moments. But I want you to consider something. God here raising up a pagan king to deliver his people and calling that pagan king his anointed means that God's operating outside of the box, isn't he? Outside of the way that he usually operates. God has a a standard operating procedure, but we need to remember that God is God and he can operate outside of that standard operating procedure anytime he so pleases and anytime it fits his plan. And so the Lord speaks very directly to Cyrus here. Matter of fact, if you notice in verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. You should have the sense here that we are overhearing a privileged communication from the Lord to this man Cyrus. This word was particularly directed to this man, and again, given some 200 years before he was born. This was God's message to him, and Cyrus apparently listened. We know that Josephus, the great Jewish historian of approximately the time of Jesus, this man Josephus in his uh, Antiquities of the Jews, which is a history of the Jewish people, said that Cyrus knew these things from reading the book of prophecy, which Isaiah had left some 200 years before him. And so amazingly, Cyrus read this and it touched his heart deeply and he knew that the Lord was God. You would know this very specifically, too, as it says in verse 1, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings. 
Like many of us, Cyrus could look back on his life after the Lord told him this and look back on his career and see how the Lord had held his hand the entire time. Isn't that marvelous, my friends? You see, I don't think Cyrus was consciously aware that the Lord was holding his hand at the time. But yet, as God says it, and as he looks back, he can see, yes, Lord, you were holding my hand. You were guiding me. You were leading me. You were protecting me. That time when I was promoted unexpectedly, you were behind it, Lord. That time when my life was preserved, you were behind that, Lord. Can you look back on your life this evening and see how God has held your right hand all the time, even when you didn't know it? And God empowered Cyrus by holding his right hand. It says there in verse 1, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings. Cyrus had a remarkable military career and subdued many nations. One commentator gives a list of several of them, quoting from an ancient Greek historian. He says that Cyrus subdued the Syrians, the Assyrians, the Arabians, the Cappadocians, the Phrygians, the Lydians, the Carians, the Phoenicians, the Babylonians, the Bactrianians, the Indians, the Cilicians, the Sacians, the Paphagolonians, the Mariandians, and many other nations. That's quite a tongue-twisting mouthful there, but you get the idea, don't you? When it says there in verse 1 that he was to subdue nations before him, God meant that very literally. There's even something else in verse 1 that strikes our fancy. Remarkably so, at the very last line of verse 1, it says that to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. Now to explain the importance of those two lines, we need to understand something about when Cyrus conquered Babylon. Let's get a little bit of our history in order here. Some 100 years after the time Isaiah prophesied, the mighty empire of Babylon conquered Judah and carried away the captives of Judah in what we would call today a forced relocation or perhaps even an ethnic cleansing. And they basically depopulated the whole nation of Judah except for the very lowest of the classes who were allowed to remain. And so in carrying away these people of the nation of Judah and taking them into Babylon as captives, as exiles, as those forced to relocate, the Babylonian empire oppressed God's people for 70 years. But at the end of that 70 years, the Babylonian empire was overthrown by Cyrus, who led the army of the Medes and the Persians, Cyrus himself was a Persian, who led these armies together and conquered Babylon in a remarkable way. Of course, the Babylonian Empire was, uh, had its capital city of the city of Babylon. The city of Babylon, just for your own reference, had a remarkably strong fortress surrounding it. The city walls were high, were broad, and thought to be impenetrable to get an idea of how confident the people of Babylon were in the defenses of their city, when they knew that the armies of Cyrus were encamped out around their city and destined to destroy it, when they knew that they were uh, under attack and under siege, the leader of the city of Babylon, a man named Belshazzar, as it's recorded for us in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar had a huge feast, a huge party that very night because he was so confident in the military preparations and the security that the city afforded. But according to the ancient historian Herodotus, while King Belshazzar of Babylon held a reckless party, Cyrus conquered the city by diverting the flow of the Euphrates River into a nearby swamp. This lowered the level of a river that ran right through the city. Now, at its normal level, the uh, river was protected by an iron gate that went over it. But when the level of the river was lowered, Cyrus's soldiers could make their way under the gateway and walk into the inner part of the gates and the walls of the city, but they still would not have been able to enter had not the bronze walls of the inner, excuse me, the bronze gates of the inner walls been left inexplicably unlocked. I just put it to you very plainly. God opened the gates of the city of Babylon for Cyrus, and he put it in writing 200 years before it happened. Again, look at it here. To open before him the double door so that the gates will not be shut. That's a remarkable prophecy. Not only did God know who would be the conqueror of Babylon and the deliverer of his people, but God knew exactly how he would conquer Babylon. 
God arranged it by opening the gates of the city. So if you notice, verse 2 reads, I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places. The night that they conquered the city, Cyrus and his armies took all the staggering treasures of the city of Babylon. And it was important that Cyrus know that the Lord had given it to him. Let's remind ourselves that at the very beginning of verse 1, we were told that this was a word that God gave directly to Cyrus. God was sending Cyrus a message 200 years before Cyrus was born so that Cyrus would know that God had a plan and a destiny for his life. Now, On the night that Babylon fell, Cyrus probably had no great sense of the Lord's guidance or presence. He probably thought of himself as being both brilliant and lucky. Oftentimes we succeed in something only by the blessing and pleasure of God, and we never see the miraculous hand of God behind it all, but the miraculous hand is there nonetheless. And it says, I will give you the treasures of darkness. All those things were given to Cyrus by God. Why? Look at the end of verse 3. You may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. And we remind ourselves that God announced all this 200 years before its fulfillment so that Cyrus would know and glorify the Lord. But the Lord also did it so that Cyrus would show kindness to the people of God, granting them permission to return to the promised land from the captivity imposed upon them by the Babylonians. By the way, Cyrus fulfilled this perfectly. The royal proclamations of Cyrus fulfilling this prophecy are found in Ezra chapter 1 and 2 Chronicles chapter 36. So, Iris, excuse me, Cyrus had this amazingly wonderful place in God's plan. Then we sort of scratch our heads and think, I wonder what Cyrus thought about this. He, it's easy to pat yourself on the back when you know that God's using you, when you know that God's chosen you, and perhaps Cyrus is thinking, well, I must be pretty special in the plan of God. He, he chose all, all this for, to be done by me. But if you notice here, verse 4 continues on the thought and sort of puts Cyrus in his place. It says, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you though you have not known me. I'm sure Cyrus would have liked to think that God picked him because he was the smartest or most talented or the strongest man available. But really, God's focus was on his people, not on Cyrus at all. It wasn't Cyrus that moved God to act, but it was the condition and cry of his people. It was for their sake. One of the great ironies of history that so often... Great kingdoms rise and fall, empires are flourish and then are shattered, all for the sake of God's hand of blessing or protecting or dealing with his people in some way or another. Alan Redpath brings out his point here in his commentary on the book of Isaiah where he says, Cyrus is preferred in order that Israel might be released. Cyrus shall have a kingdom, but only in order that God's people may have their liberty. The Lord raises up one and he puts down another. Behind all the drama of human events today, there is a God who is planning for his church through affliction and persecution, chastening and tribulation to be perfected and prepared to inherit the kingdom of God. See, God had a plan for Cyrus. Continues on in verse 4, For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form the light and create the darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Cyrus didn't even know the Lord. Repeated in this passage is the idea that I will gird you, I will bless you, I have named you, though you have not known me. Cyrus didn't even know the Lord, yet God could anoint him, guide him, bless him, and use him. Now think about that for a moment. God could anoint 
guide, bless, and use a man who didn't even know him, how much more should God be able to do through those who at least have a mustard seed worth of faith, who even have the smallest understanding of him and his ways? God worked through Cyrus in a very unexpected way. Why? That the nations would know the Lord. It says right there in verse 6, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. God not only did this for the sake of his people, but he also did it to glorify himself. This was wonderfully fulfilled in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This passage shows how when Cyrus made his proclamation, allowing the people of God to return to the promised land, he acknowledged to the whole world the greatness and the uniqueness of the God of Israel. Look here, uh, Ezra chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is a proclamation from Cyrus. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. By the way, it says Jeremiah, because Jeremiah made similar prophecies to those that Isaiah makes right here in this chapter. Uh, Ezra could have just as easily wrote, By the mouth of Isaiah the prophet. In any regard, going on here, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Now here's the quote from Cyrus. All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. You see, that proclamation found in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, so clearly shows that uh, Cyrus fulfilled this great role that God had for him. Uh, Isaiah 45, verse 6 says, that they may know from the rising of the sun to the setting that there is none besides me. And that's exactly what Cyrus proclaimed as recorded by the prophet Ezra. Something else interesting in these few verses. If you notice verse 7 The Lord says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Simply put, Isaiah knows, Cyrus would know and declare to the whole world and what we should know today, that God is in control. Since this prophecy was given long before God's people went into captivity, Isaiah now announces deliverance from, they would be comforted through the captivity by knowing that God is in control. That's to be an assurance to God's people and an instruction to Cyrus. So here, a word of praise in verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 45. Rain down, you heavens from above. And let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation. And let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. God, pouring out salvation, pouring out blessing, both raining it down from heaven and springing it up from the earth. God will deliver His people. He'll raise up instruments like Cyrus, even unexpected instruments to do that work. But God will deliver His people. It's so sure. It's so positive. It's foolish to resist it. It's foolish to question it. It's understood by many ancient Jewish commentators that there was some among God's people in the days of Cyrus who were upset with the Lord that he had chosen Cyrus to be the deliverer. After all, this was God operating outside of the box. God operating outside of the normal way that he does. And there may have been some bitterness, some resentment, I should say, among God's people. Lord, why did you pick Cyrus? Why didn't you pick one of our own? Was there no godly man or woman among Israel that you could have picked? Why a pagan king, Lord? Might we say that when God does unexpected things and operates, so to speak, outside the box, we fully respect his right to do it, his wisdom in doing it. That's the point Isaiah addresses here, beginning at verse 9, where he says, Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, What are you beginning? Or to the woman, What have you brought forth? Again, he starts out in verse 9, Woe to him who strives with his maker. 
knowing that God is the creator of all things, should make us hesitant to oppose Him in any way. It's as foolish for the clay to say to Him who forms it, what are you making? Now, could you imagine that? Here's the clay being shaped in the hands of the potter, and the clay rises up and and answers back to the potter and says, hey, what are you doing? Why are you squeezing me this way? Why are you molding me this way? Why are you wetting me and then drying me and then smashing me and then shaping me? But we understand that it's not the place of the clay to question or to uh, interrogate the, the potter. No. No, it's the potter who's the creator of the clay. See, it's foolish for us to oppose our creator. Why? First of all, he created us. He can break us, can't he? It's foolish for us to oppose our creator because since he made us, he knows what's best for us. It's foolish for us to oppose our creator because we owe the greatest obligations to our creator. My friends, that's what Isaiah is getting at here. He's saying that it's not the place of us to question how God's working, even when he works in unusual ways. Something else in here, perhaps a subtle point at the end of verse 9. First, Isaiah brings up the idea of the pottery debating or questioning the potter. Then he says, uh, towards the end of verse 9, Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands? You see, the only thing more foolish than the creature resisting and opposing the Creator is for the creature to believe that there is no Creator. Isaiah pictures a clay pot, the handiwork of the potter, saying, My potter has no hands. I have no Creator. And isn't this the attitude of the world today? Hasn't Satan done an extraordinarily effective job in the last hundred years or so? Persuading Mankind of the most abominable nonsense. That there can be a creation without a creator. That there can be a design without a designer. Something can come from nothing. It's all foolishness. No, the creator has hands. And we have obligations to him as our creator. So the God of all creation will raise up Cyrus and deliver his people. Look at it here, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. I have made the earth and have created man on it. It was I, my hands that stretched out the heavens, and all their host I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, nor for, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Again, did you notice how verse 11 uh, develops the point here? God declares, I've made the earth and created man on it. Repeatedly, through this extended section of Isaiah, God emphasizes His place as Creator. And the importance put on this idea here shows us that knowing God as our Creator isn't just an option or just a matter of textbook fights in the courts or in the public schools. Friends, when we reject God as Creator, we reject the God of the Bible and serve a God of our own imagination. God really did make us. And it really does matter. Not only does God extend His creating and directing power to the the stars in the heavens, the great glories of this earth, no, but even down to the individual lives where He says in verse 13, I have raised Him up in righteousness and I will direct all His ways. Speaking of God raising up Cyrus as a deliverer for Israel. The power that God has, the the creative ability and authority, He uses that power on behalf of His people. He will direct the ways of the announced deliverer Cyrus, and He'll cause him to rebuild Jerusalem and release the people of God captive to a forced relocation. If you notice here, it says in verse 13, and Cyrus will do it, not for price or reward, No, nobody's paying him off to allow God's people to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city and the temple. No, Cyrus does it not for price or reward, but out of conviction that God has told him to do it. 
Continuing on here, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, The labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains, and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly you are God who hides yourself. O God of Israel, the Savior, they shall be ashamed and also disgraced all of them. They shall go in confusion together who are makers of idols, but Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. God here announcing the deliverance of his people, but not only in the immediate sense that Isaiah was looking forward to that would come forth in the days of Cyrus after the Babylonian captivity and exile, as we see the turnaround of nations described in verse 14, how the labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans men of stature, how they will come over and be surrendered and submitted to the people of Israel. It tells us that this is also looking forward to the great messianic kingdom of the millennium that is to come. Now when I say the millennium that is to come, I don't mean starting with the year 2000. I mean the glorious thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ that's prophesied to us very specifically in the Scriptures. The Bible tells us something which sounds curious to our ears today, and we wouldn't really believe unless it was spelled out so plainly in the Scriptures. The Bible says that among the nations on the earth in the days of the millennium, there will be a superpower. Even as the United States of America is a superpower in the world today, we dominate the world culturally, militarily, politically, economically. There will be a superpower on the earth in the days when Jesus Christ rules and reigns for a thousand years, and that superpower will be Israel. One day Israel will be supreme among the nations and lead them as they and the Lord please. And they bow down to Israel. And they'll say to Israel, as it says here in the end of verse 14, Surely God is in you and there is no other. There is no other God. God points out how exalted he is, especially compared to the idols, beginning at verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And There is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Did you notice how verse 18 begins again? For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. By sheer repetition, Isaiah virtually pounds it into our awareness that God is our creator and we have obligations to him as our creator. When God created the earth, he didn't create it in vain, but to have a divine purpose, a purpose that would be fulfilled in and through his people and his entire plan of redemption. No, God tells his people, seek me. Draw yourselves together, as it says in verse 20, you who have escaped from the nations. And then he points out of the nations in verse 20, they have no knowledge. They carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. As the Lord declares his own greatness, his own faithfulness and saving power, it naturally contrasts with the foolish idols of the nations, which must be carried instead of being able to carry the one who worships them. Did you notice that? They have to carry the wood of their carvage and they pray to a God who cannot save. Amazingly, people still do that today. Worshiping gods of their own imagination, of their own efforts. They're praying to gods that cannot save. God deliver us from that. Beginning at verse 22. 
Lord cries out, and in contrast to these impotent idols, these impotent false gods that cannot save, the Lord says in verse 22, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. This verse is remarkably precious to me for reasons that I'll explain in a few moments. One of the things I love of it is that it's such a simple but powerful statement showing us the plan of salvation. Let me read it again. Listen carefully. Isaiah 45, 22. The Lord says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Well, it shows us the simplicity of salvation, doesn't it? What do you have to do to be saved? Look. It doesn't say, Work for me and be saved. It doesn't say slave for me and be saved. It doesn't say be sinless for me and be saved. It simply says, look to me and be saved. Alan Redpath says, One can read many books on theology which expound all kinds of things in an attempt to show how man can reach God. But these theories are far from the truth. The Holy Spirit needs exactly four letters, and two of them are the same, to tell us what to do. L-O-O-K. Look. That is all. It's the simplest, basic thing any person can do. Yet it's the most difficult to do in daily living. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. But not only does it show us the simplicity of salvation, it also shows us the focus of salvation. Look to me, the Lord says, and be saved. We must look to God and never to ourselves or anything else of man. God says in his word, look to me. It means looking away from the church because the church never saved anybody. It means looking away from the preacher because he'll only disappoint and disillusion you if you put your trust in him. It means looking away from all outward form and ceremony. You must look off from all of that and look unto the Lord and look at the throned Jesus up in heaven. See the risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ and look to him. It shows us the simplicity of salvation, the focus of salvation, but it also shows us the love behind salvation. God pleads with man, look to me. He didn't have to say it. He could have just said, well, look, that's how they're saved. If they want to look to me, they can, and, and that's all there is to it. If they figure it out on their own, great. If they don't, well, they just get what they deserve. God could have said that, but he didn't. He pleads with us looks at you lovingly tonight. And he says, look to me and be saved. That's another point, isn't it? Not only does this text show us the simplicity of salvation, the focus of salvation, the love behind salvation, but it also shows us the assurance of salvation. Verse 22 says, look to me and be saved. Not look to me and you got a shot of making it in the end. Look to me and let's see how it goes. Look to me and maybe you might make it through. No, there's a certainty to it, isn't there? Look to me and be saved. The final point we can make on this, yes. Shows us the simplicity of salvation, the focus of salvation, the love behind salvation, the assurance of salvation. Finally, it shows us the extent of God's saving love Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. That's how far abroad God wants to offer his salvation. All you ends of the earth. What do they have to do? Simply look to the Lord. In Numbers chapter 21, as the people of Israel were on their way from the land of Egypt to the promised land, the people of Israel were stricken by deadly snake bites. And Moses lifted up the image of a bronze serpent raised on a pole. And the people who looked to that lived. The people weren't saved by doing anything, by simply looking to the bronze serpent. They had to trust that something as seemingly foolish as looking at such a thing would be sufficient to save them. And surely some of them perished because they thought it was too foolish to just look at something and live. 
So it says here in Isaiah 45, 22, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. You might be willing to do a hundred things to earn your salvation, but God commands you only to trust in Him, to look to Him. By the way, might I add too that it doesn't even say that you should see Jesus, that you should see the Lord. He just says, look. You might feel like you're in the dark, like you're in a fog. You can't see anything. You're groping about, yet you hear the voice of the Lord calling to you tonight, look to me and be saved. And you hear the voice, and you look in the direction of the Lord. You don't even have to see him, just look towards him. Don't waste your effort trying to see Jesus. Just look unto him. Some of you may know that one of my favorite preachers and Bible teachers through the ages has been this man Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who ministered a little more than a hundred years ago in London, England. And this was the passage of Scripture that prompted his salvation. You see, on Sunday, January 6th, 1850, a young man not quite 16 years of age walked through a village street in a little town some 50 miles from London. On the bitterly cold day, the snow fell down heavily, but he, he was more concerned to find a church because he was deeply conscious of his need for God and of the breakdown, sin, and failure of his life, even at that young age. As he made his way through the street with the snow falling, he felt it was too far to go back to the church which he'd intended to visit. So he walked down a back lane and entered a little Methodist chapel. He found a seat near the back. It was just as cold inside of the church as it was outside. And there were only about 13 people sitting inside that little cold church. Service was due to start at 11 o'clock, but at 11 o'clock the preacher hadn't showed up. Finally the clock ticked on, and at five minutes after 11 the preacher still hadn't showed up. Apparently he was detained by the bad weather. And so one of the deacons came to the rescue and began conducting the service. I suppose he led in some songs and some prayers and such, but after a little while, he started his message. He opened up his Bible to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. He said, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. The deacon wasn't an educated man. He didn't know a lot of Bible commentaries, or he wasn't a great student of the Scriptures. So he said all he had to say about that passage in about ten minutes. And he just couldn't think of anything more to say. But before he sat down, he noticed a miserable-looking young man sitting in the back pew. And he stopped. He stopped. He pointed out and he, he called out to the back of the room and said to the man, he said, that young man there looks very miserable. Spurgeon said, I suppose I did look miserable because that's how I felt. And then the deacon continued on and he said, there's no hope for you, young man, or any chance of getting rid of your sin but by looking to Jesus. And then Spurgeon says that he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, the deacon said, look, look, young man, look now. Now, quoting Spurgeon, he says, And I did look. And when they sang a hallelujah before they went home in their own earnest way, I'm sure I joined in it. What happened to me that day when the snow was lying deep and more was falling? As I went home, those words of David kept ringing in my heart, Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And it seemed as if all nature was in accord with that blessed deliverance from sin which I had found in a single moment by looking to Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon looked and lived. You can too. You go on here, verse 23. It says, I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. 
Did you notice that passage where it says that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath? It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Of course it does, because in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, the Lord declares that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Paul was very consciously and obviously quoting this passage from Isaiah. But I want you to notice something here that gives us a marvelous evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul applies this passage to Jesus, and clearly in Isaiah chapter 45, it's the Lord God who is speaking. So as far as Paul is concerned, obviously, Jesus Christ is the Lord God. Now if everyone will bow before the Lord, it's fitting that it begins here in verse 1 of chapter 46, where we read, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded. A burden to the weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, but they could not deliver the burden. They have themselves gone into captivity. That Bell and Nebo, you know who they are, don't you? Those were names of two false gods that the idol-worshipping nations served. It is if now God gets personal. You see, for chapter upon chapter, God has been challenging false gods, challenging these, these idolatrous gods. Now God calls them out by name. He says, I, I'm done messing around. Let's, let's get down to it. I'm calling out two of these false gods by name. Bel, Nebo, come before me. Let's look at your credentials to be God. And Funny the way the Lord puts it here in verse 1. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Isaiah pictures God's people going into captivity and in a forced relocation, loaded onto their beasts and carriages. Are there idols? Even their idols are carried away into captivity and loaded onto the moving trucks. The bottom line is that the idols could not deliver the burden, but they themselves have gone into captivity. You get the picture here, don't you? Is your God going to ease your burden, or is your God going to be a burden to you? Funny the way that the, some people present that. You see the contrast here beginning at verse 3 where it says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and even to your gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and deliver you. You see, the false gods represented by the dumb, dead idols, they have to be carried. But God carries His people, as it says in verses 3 and 4. As you've been upheld by me from birth, you've been carried from the womb. God has carried us even from our birth, and He promises to continue to carry them. He says, even to the gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry. That's what the Lord says. He's made us. He'll carry us. Worthy question, isn't it? Do you have to carry your gods, or does your God carry you? Lord will carry you. I think it's terrible the way sometimes the Lord and His work is presented before people today as if people have to carry God. You've heard it, haven't you, from the money-grubbing preacher? He presents his case as if, as if God's going broke. And if you don't chip in your contribution, then God's going to go bankrupt. Oh, you've got to help God out. You've got to carry Him along. You don't have to carry God. God's going to carry you. Far be it from me to suggest that we don't need to be givers. We obviously do. We have to be very generous givers. But friends, it's not for God's sake that we're givers. It's for our sake. So that we can be like our God, who is the ultimate giver. If we're going to be like Him, we need to be givers as well. But it's not to carry God. It's so that we can see Him carry us. Continuing on now, verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on their shoulders and carry it and set it in its place and it stands. From its place it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer. 
nor save him out of his trouble. Oh, you've got to give a lot of money and attention to the production and the care of your idols. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, indeed I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass, I have purposed it. I will also do it. Verse 8, the Lord begins, remember this, and show yourself men. We can gain the courage of real men when we remember the things God tells us to remember. You know, you see it a long time ago. There was a book, you know, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche, and the jokes went around for a long time. Real men do this. Real men don't do that. I'll tell you something that real men do. Real men remember the great things of God. How much defeat we suffer in the Christian life through simply forgetting. So God says, remember the former things of old, that there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning. God knows the end of every matter and the course of every circumstance just as anyone else can see the beginning of it. And so God says, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God knows the end of the beginning because he's much more than a passive observer of events. His counsel shall stand. His works and his plans never fail because he will do all his pleasure. God isn't just watching the entire parade of history. He's directing the parade. And the essential point about all this is that we must remember this about the Lord. Remember his great control. Remember his great wisdom. Remember his great power. We can have tremendous courage in our God when we understand and remember who He is and what He does. And even that He'll raise up a deliverer as He describes in verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Again, that's a reference to Cyrus. God has His deliverer. He'll raise Him up at the right time. Notice it here, verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. God's people need to remember that God's timing is always precise and wise. Did you see what he says there in verse 13? My salvation shall not linger. Just like Israel was in this circumstance, sometimes we are stubborn-hearted. And the Lord says, listen to me, you stubborn-hearted. My salvation shall not linger. We need to listen to the Lord and remember that His delays are never really delays, not in His timing. He's never late. God always has His deliverer, and He always knows exactly when to bring His deliverance. And we'll finish up tonight with chapter 47. Read about the humiliation of Babylon. Again, we're reminded that as the Lord would allow the Babylonians to bring chastisement among his people in Judah, God didn't approve, though, of the own attitude and heart and character of the Babylonians. He would judge them for their pride. Look at it here, verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. But you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil, take off the skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the waters. Your nakedness shall be uncovered, yet your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance and will not arbitrate with a man. Isaiah pictures proud Babylon as a humiliated woman who shall no more be called tender and delicate. She's stripped of her fine clothing and forced to march in a forced relocation. She has to wade through rivers, so she's got to hike up her skirts. It's the image of a rich, frivolous, and sensual young woman who as a prisoner is doomed to the despicable state of a slave. God says, that's you, Babylon. Once high and mighty like a rich, privileged woman, I'm going to bring you low, God says. 
I will take vengeance, and I will not arbitrate with a man. The humiliation that God will impose on Babylon is exactly the humiliation that she put upon Judah and Jerusalem. When God humbles Babylon, he's taking vengeance, and he can't be talked out of his judgment. The Lord's going to be glorified in it. Look at verse 4. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. As for our Redeemer. (laughs) Seemingly, Isaiah can't help himself. When he sees how God will take vengeance on this enemy of God's people, he praises God and he boasts in his Redeemer. Now verse 5 goes on to explain the reason why God will humble Babylon. He says, Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. You shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly, you laid your yoke very heavily. And you said, I shall be a lady forever. So that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. Babylon thought that she conquered Judah and Jerusalem through her own power, but Babylon didn't see that she really conquered them because God was angry with his people, and therefore he used Babylon as an instrument of his work. God says, you didn't know that I had given them into your hand. It was ignorance. That was one reason for judgment. The other reason was cruelty. If you notice there, in verse 6 it says, and you showed them no mercy. As an instrument in God's hand, Babylon was too enthusiastic in their attack on God's people. Even though God allowed it and God used it, they still should have showed mercy to God's people. You know, we're always safe when we take the path of mercy. And then they said, I shall be a lady forever. Babylon was blind. Babylon was cruel. Now Babylon is shown to be proud and presumptuous And for all these reasons, God promises to humble Babylon. Look at it here, verse 8. Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is none else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in a day, The loss of children and widowhood, they shall come upon you in their heart in fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments. You see, as Babylon sat in the midst of her pride and arrogance, God brings another charge against Babylon. Judgment also comes, as he says there in verse 9, because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments. Babylon was famous as a founding place and a breeding ground for the occultic arts and practices. And God says, that's another reason I'm bringing judgment upon you. Verse 10. You've trusted in your wickedness. You've said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you said in your heart, I am, and there's no one else besides me. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises, and trouble shall fall upon you. You will not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. This is a searching insight into the heart of the proud sinner. They trust in their wickedness, and they trust in continuing wickedness to cover the tracks of the previous sin. Judgment's coming. It says simply, therefore, evil shall come upon you. God rebuking the tremendous pride of Babylon. Really, it's a simple fulfillment of a principle repeated three times in the Scriptures. Declared in Proverbs, in the book of James, and in the book of First Peter. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As Babylon is this proud empire, blind, proud, arrogant. God will humble her. Let's finish up the chapter here, beginning at verse 12. Stand now with your enchantments, and the multitude of your sorceries, 
in which you've labored from your youth. Perhaps you'll be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. You're wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from these things that shall come upon you. Behold, they shall be a stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored. Your merchants from your youth, they shall wander each one to his quarter. No one shall save you. God challenges the stargazers and the sorcerers of Babylon. Uh, Protect yourself from my judgment. Come on, you guys have spiritual power. You have spiritual authority. You, You say you have supernatural insight. Then stand before me and resist my awesome judgment. And of course they cannot. Their weakness in the face of the Lord's judgment, it'll all be exposed. They shall be a stubble and the fire shall burn them. Notice here, it says very carefully in verse 14, Behold, they shall be a stubble. How does stubble burn? It ignites rapidly, violently even. Says the fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. And then notice these last few lines of verse 14. I find them very striking. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. It's as if the Babylonians were underestimating God's judgment. Oh, fire of judgment's coming. Well, it's a coal to be warmed by. It's a fire to sit before. I'll just warm myself in front of a campfire. How much they underestimate the fire of God's judgment. How many greatly underestimate the blazing strength of God's judgment? Sometimes you see the same tragic thinking among those today. Maybe you've heard it before. Somebody says, hey, I won't mind going to hell. I'll party there with all my friends. It'd be funny if it wasn't so tragic. How greatly they underestimate the judgment of God. They think the fires of judgment will somehow be useful or comforting. I've even heard people mention that they're going to water ski on the lake of fire. Friends, what a deadly mistake. Can there be a more dangerous sin than to underestimate the judgment of God? Look at it here at the very end of verse 15. It says, no one shall save you. What a final sentence to our chapter and to our study this evening. No one shall save you. And if we will not find our salvation in the Lord, if we will not look to Him and be saved, then that's the only other option. No one shall save you. You're certainly not going to save yourself. Nobody else can or will. What a comparison. Look at the two phrases. Isaiah 47 15, no one shall save you. And then Isaiah 45, 22, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. That's the option before us tonight, isn't it? You can look to the Lord and be saved, or you can try to save yourself or trust in something else. The prescription for you is written at the end of Isaiah 47. No one shall save. Tonight we should thank God that He's a saving, loving God. And He gives every one of us tonight the invitation to look to Him and be saved. No one here has to have it written over their life, no one shall save you. The Lord God will save you. If you will look to Him, look. Put your focus, your attention, your life's direction and goal upon Him. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word tonight. We ask, Lord, that every aspect of this great message from you, this warning of judgment that you gave to Babylon, the comfort you gave to Israel in telling them of their coming deliverer Cyrus, the confidence that we can have in a God who knows the end from the beginning, Lord, we entrust all of this to you. We thank you and we love you, Lord. Help us to look to you, Lord. Lord, put blinders on our eyes. 
This little horse wears blinders so that they, they can't look at things that would distract them. Lord, that's what we need. That's what we want. Put blinders on our eyes, Lord. So that we would only be able to look to you and live. Not look to the side. Not look to ourselves. Not look anywhere else but to you. Give us those blinders, Lord, so that we could look to you and be saved. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.